0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, brought to you by Ceres. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. Today, consumers and investors are seeking global responsibility for the social and environmental impacts of their investments and are demanding enterprise-level transparency in corporate reporting and supply chain disclosure through sustainable finance industry outlets. Cato Muir is a cultural leader and traditional owner of the Nalia people. His traditional territories are in the deserts of Western Australia, and his people are part of the Western Desert Cultural Block, the last regions of Australia to be settled by Europeans. But before we start, I want to say a few words about our sponsor. I'm thrilled to talk about the important work Series is doing. Series is a nonprofit organization working with the most influential capital market leaders to solve the world's greatest sustainability challenges through their powerful networks of global collaborations with investors, companies, and nonprofits. Series drives action and inspires equitable, market-based, and policy solutions throughout the economy. To learn more, go to series.org/podcast. That's C E. RES.org slash podcast. At series, sustainability is the bottom line. Cato, welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast for today's conversation.
1: Oh, thank you, Paul. Well, I'm really pleased to be here with you and your audience.
0: Yes, well, we're glad you, you could join us from um, the land down under, as they say, right? The other side of the world. So, Cato, the Nalia people have around 23,000 square kilometers of exclusive possession, native titled land, and you're potentially the largest landowners in Australia, and yet your people remain in poverty. Why is that?
1: It's uh, part of the circumstances uh, of the nature in, of colonization and the the dispossession and marginalisation of Indigenous peoples. And so what what happens is that the infrastructure that is established in a post-colonial, so Australia uh, being a post-colonial society, uh, has served to exclude the First Nations or Indigenous peoples from effective participation. And so we're... Once we held sway over uh, most of the territories in in Australia, the process of uh, imperialism and colonisation has resulted in the First Nations being dispossessed and marginalised politically, economically, uh, socially. Um, And where we are today is essentially in a transition of recovery uh, from the effects of uh, those uh, forces of colonisation, which uh, commenced uh, about 200 years on the East Coast in uh, in Sydney. But in my region, where I come from, uh, it's my grandparents' generation who uh, first experienced uh, the full impact of, uh, you know, the coming of Europeans into our Region and subsequently, the uh, you know, taking up of land for uh, gold mining, uh, uh, nickel mines, those kinds of extractive industries, as well as pastoral, uh, the grazing of uh, sheep and cattle, uh, and that essentially has resulted in land being taken away from us. Um, but in recent years, with the advent of uh, the the Mabo Native Title decision in the High Court of Australia, uh, we were able to start to seek reparations and restitution of these lands.
0: Okay. Now, as you just mentioned, in recent years, First Nations in Australia, New Zealand and Canada have been building on the processes of restitution through treaties and land settlements to reclaim wealth in First Nations yet, despite increasing access to extensive land holdings, significant impediments are preventing Australia's First Nations people from effectively mobilizing your resources. What is preventing the mobilization of those resources for your people?
1: Yes, there there are two two key areas. One is the nature of the laws that are written to uh, allow for the recognition. Some of these uh, laws in in the legislation itself uh, specifically preclude commercial activities. And what it does is it creates a a system of dependency, uh, which uh, is often reflected in welfare dependency, but it uh, creates that um, dependency on uh, welfare from the state and prevents us from being able to access, uh, take and use our resources of our territories, uh, in the form of trade or in the form of production of goods or services. Now, that has been part of the um, the process that we've been engaged in in um, uh, restituting and repatriating our lands. Is also to create the opportunity to free up. Uh, essentially the equity that resides in that land. And so that comes into the second part of the challenge, though, is uh, the legal uh, parameters are unclear. So uh, a lot of these lands fall into an informal uh, category of uh, tenure and uh, and financial instruments. And so the capability to raise... Finance against what is essentially inalienable or infungible uh, territories uh, prevents us from actively participating in the in the market economy. And so, what we're then faced with is the challenge to try and find creative ways of uh, participating. Uh, one of the traditional manners, of course, is to uh, rent our lands to. Third parties, which may include mining industry or renewable energy projects, uh, etc. Um, but the other way is to start looking today at the sustainable uh, finance industry. Uh, initially, at the responsible investment frameworks, but also in terms of um, uh, the nature-based solutions uh, as they relate both to capital uh, carbon, but also as they relate to the recognition or realization of the uh, biodiversity, potential for biodiversity curves.
0: Okay. Cato, can I answer? I had a question about nature-based solutions. Uh, there, there, There may be members of our uh, audience who are not familiar with that terminology. Could you explain that a little bit more for our listeners?
1: Absolutely, yes. There, there is a, a movement afoot, and I it's basically uh, happening as we speak uh, at this very moment. Um, the world uh, financial sector are basically developing what they call uh, transaction uh, transactions for nature-based disclosures. Hmm. And my understanding is that the the SEC in the US has actually, uh, and I think I might have heard this on your podcast. Before, <laughs> but, uh, I hope you did. <laughs> yeah, I did. But uh, my understanding is that the SEC has uh, implemented um, uh, recommendations, or not recommendations, implemented uh, requirements that um, companies start to disclose their impact or nature uh in the way in which they go about their business
0: yes um, if I yes. Let, let me jump in here for a second to just comment that the sec is promulgating regulations which have not come into force yet they they will uh um, later this year regarding e s and g reporting requirements for enterprises of all public company uh nature uh, of course, that's, that's the group of, of businesses in, in our economy that the SEC uh, is in charge of. So far, uh, the reach is not going to the private market space, but you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. Regarding the public markets, and you, hopefully you did hear that on our podcast, the SEC will be issuing regulations, and a lot of companies are scrambling to get ready for that kind of reporting here in the U.S. So go ahead.
1: Oh, yes, no, totally. And uh, it's happening here in Australia as well, in terms of uh, companies that may be dual listed, uh, both on the Australian Stock Exchange and on the SEC. Um, I think it's on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, Yeah, yeah. And so what we're finding is that there are um, environmental uh, firms that are basically building that capability or capacity to do uh, uh, nature based. uh, methodologies and understand how what the methodologies are, and they are also some of the mining companies are actually starting to employ uh, people who claim to have the skill set, which uh, you know it's a completely new uh, frontier in terms of uh, a skill set. But um, there are companies mobilising to position themselves to be able to uh, participate in those reporting uh, mechanisms.
0: Now, if you were in that position working for a mining company or if i was what would our remit be what would be what would we be responsible for in terms of nature-based solutions for example that a mining company should be considering
1: well there are basically impacts on uh, threatened species um so where a operation may impact a habitat or it may impact a um, migratory pattern uh, in terms of uh, tailings dams, things like that. Uh, So the company will then need to be able to uh, a uh, develop um, responses to be able to manage the impact of its operations. um, And uh, in the best case scenario is to Ensure that the operations have no impact on the survival of the whether it's an animal species or a flora uh, species, um, or also develop uh, the mechanisms to actually um, uh, manage, manage any impacts. So, and, and there are other things like uh, off- offset uh, mechanisms as well, which uh, look at um, although it's, it's difficult to be able to define a Uh, adequate offset uh, mechanism where a survival of a species may be at stake and so this is you know it's a really important issue uh, across the world and it's actually I would argue that it's actually the uh, 90% uh, of what um, you know the carbon uh, market is probably just 10% of this uh, this uh, bigger issue
0: Yes, I would agree with you. And, of course, the carbon markets offsets that are being developed and offered uh, on many yeah. stock exchanges and commodities exchanges uh, in the developed economies are designed ultimately to reduce carbon pollution in the atmosphere. So that could certainly be applied to nature-based solutions, I believe, as well as atmospheric uh, conditions. Right?
1: Yeah uh you know you reducing uh, so a methodology around human uh, reduced uh, you know uh, reducing human impact on carbon uh, but also uh, some of the offset models are basically designed around investing in uh, nature-based programs that um, that essentially invest in the uh, ecosystem and in that ecosystem the you know nature basically is uh, supported and enhanced to um, perform its uh, natural functions, which also include a a capacity to capture and store and sequester carbon.
0: Now, could you give us an example uh, from the Western Australian region that you live in of a potential nature-based solution that you think is necessary to happen there?
1: Well, I mean, part of what I'm doing in, in my territory, uh, you know, as we say, we've got 24,000 square kilometres of um, land that uh, is essentially pristine. Uh, this land uh, has, uh, we only have one road going through the, the entire territory, um, a track, not a road. It's actually a four-wheel drive track and uh, there are remains of vehicles that have never made it <laughs> on the side <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, yeah, and we're in the deserts uh, where my country is. uh, We've got three of the uh, great Australian deserts, the Great Victoria Desert, uh, the Gibson Desert and the Sandy Desert. And so in that space, it's a very rich uh, bioregion. And so partly what we'd be looking at doing is to be able to document um, the, uh, the elements of the nature that we have within the desert and then to start to manage that environment in such a way that we can then uh, pr- potentially create uh, financial products which uh, support the active management of uh, people on the ground. So it also delivers um, social outcomes, uh, social impacts, Uh, but also the environmental impacts. And in that way, uh, companies that are seeking to offset, uh, you know, obviously the better scenario is that you don't uh, uh, damage the environment, but if you find yourself in a position to, uh, you know, where governments also identify targets, um, the offsetting model seems to come into, you know, click into operation. And that's the opportunity for uh, traditional owners of uh, you know these otherwise infungible territories uh, may be able to apply and deploy uh, technologies, so everything from remote sensing uh, and mapping software to environmental surveys, uh, through to then uh, documenting and describing that in uh, in a format that. Uh, then can lead to uh, creating, uh, you know, packaging it up into a fungible form. So that's essentially uh, the, the, the pro- projects or the activities. Um, as a, and a real-life uh, example of that happening at the moment in the carbon sector is a lot of, um, there's a methodology in the savannah, uh, northern Australia, where Aboriginal people are, going back to traditional fire management regimes and they're actually burning country. And in the process of burning country, they're actually having an impact on uh, the carbon that's being released. Mm. Your listeners might think, Oh, that that doesn't make sense.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, what what I know is that you're talking about systems of data collection, data Mm. analysis, and then developing protocols for addressing nature-based issues through data analysis, which is, in, from my perspective, very similar to what's being done all over the world when it comes to nature-based solutions. So it doesn't sound uh, foreign to me, but uh, you know, I know there are a lot of people who are, uh, um, don't understand much about the way that we're performing analytics in in, in sustainable finance these days. Now, before I let you go um, for today, uh, Cato, I, I would like to find out uh, about any transitions that you're aware of uh, to... Uh, Carbon tracking, any other things that you're thinking about using, or your people are thinking about using in your territory, that um, look like they may be able to support some of the work that you need to do in order to uh, reclaim the the value of the of the country and uh, keep it pristine and and keep it healthy for the future.
1: Yeah, now this is why we find a an alignment with sustainable finance with the sustainability uh, sector is that um, we, we have common objectives. And so our sustainability is really uh, in two parts. One is the – oh, three parts, actually. One is the, uh, the, the methodology that you've just described of, uh, you know, documenting, describing and uh, representing it. Uh, the other bit is around then um, looking for investment or people to invest in uh, sustainability projects over a longer term. So it's not a, not a three-year you know, uh, investment horizon. This would be a much more uh, longer term. And then our strategy is uh, even longer term again, you know, on uh, intergenerational time horizons. And the big part of what we invest in also is the uh, sustainable livelihoods for our people, but also an investment in our young people. Uh, with uh, education and exposure to what we call two-way science, which is uh, engaging with uh, Western scientific um, traditions, but also matching that up with the traditional Aboriginal uh, scientific or world views. And in that, we basically uh, enliven or bring to life a, a new way of seeing the world. Uh, both from uh, the scientific viewpoint, but also from a traditional cultural viewpoint.
0: Great. Well, listen, we're about out of time today. I'd love to revisit this conversation at some time in the future. Thanks again, Kato Muir, cultural leader and traditional owner of the Nalia people, and to our sponsor, the serious Accelerator for Sustainable Capital Markets. The Series Accelerator is a center of excellence within Series that aims to transform the practices and policies that govern capital markets to reduce the worst financial impacts of the climate crisis. For more information, go to series.org/accelerator. And to our listeners, join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast.